0: Let me pray and we will get started. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us that we are able to come gather together with the saints to worship you. Uh, I pray that as we look at your word this morning and think critically about it, that you would be faithful and that we would be able to understand uh, by your spirit and that we would be changed by uh, knowing who you are and, and knowing the truth of your word. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We, if you got your Bible, turn over to Exodus. We're starting to really pick up some momentum in this study now. We're to the second book of the Old Testament. So. <laughs> and that book, of course, is Exodus. And when you think of Exodus, just uh, kind of introductory thoughts, what, what comes to mind when you think of Exodus? And, and maybe along with that, how is Exodus important in our understanding of Scripture? Leading behind. Okay, leaving behind the old to go to the new, okay. I
1: think of the tabernacle
0: dimensions. <laughs> Randy thinks of the tabernacle oh, dimensions. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, Jason, sorry about that, yeah. Jason. Jason thinks of the tabernacle dimensions. Does anybody else think of the tabernacle dimensions? It's good stuff. What What else? The ten plagues, yeah. Yeah, we think of that.
1: Powerful miracles. Amazing. Yeah. Moses, else ever
0: heard, ever it's interesting, yeah. It, it's very Passive. Yeah. There's so many things going on there that, you know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. It's dramatic. I was going to ask if anybody thought of Charleston Heston. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, well how, how does the things that kind of come to our mind with the Exodus, how does that then really inform our understanding of the rest of Scripture? Is there anything that's critical about what we see in Exodus for our understanding of, of what we will come across later on in Scripture?
1: Well, God introduces Himself with a new name, the Lord. Yeah. And that thing carries right through to the last chapter of Revelation.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, God's identity, the great I am. Yeah, it becomes pretty critical of under understanding Scripture. Yeah, I think that's good. Anything else? The Ten Commandments. God lays down His law. You know, He he establishes His moral standard. It's pretty important.
1: Very important. Very important.
0: (laughs) All right. I I understated that. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot in here. God tells us us how to live for
1: all of our time on earth. All humanity ought to live for our time on earth.
0: Yeah, He does not leave us without some direction, some instruction. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, um, as we get into Exodus, then the, these are the kind of things we're gonna be thinking of and continuing to think about. So even as we think about Genesis, we spent the last two weeks in Genesis uh, and just kind of getting us up to this point, we were able to, to observe this great drama uh, that God began in Genesis. So it began with God Himself. Uh, Obviously, because there was nothing else uh, when Genesis begins. And then um, there is nothing until God speaks everything into existence. And we saw then the pinnacle of God's creation, which was mankind. Uh, And even as early as the third chapter, God's pinnacle of creation has rebelled against Him and has fallen into sin. And at that point, we see God begin to... um, establish this process of restoration. uh, And we're going to see that even in Exodus this week. Um, Terry showed us last week that whereas man was trying to make a name for himself uh, and he was failing to fulfill the mandate that God had given at creation, um, God now is going to intervene and he's going to choose a people that he will call by his name And he will be the one who fulfills that mandate that that he had laid forth. So we saw God choose one man, Abraham. um, And then he made a covenant with that man and he promised to bless him. And he promised, too, that all nations would be a blessing through Abraham's descendants. And so when Genesis ends, a lot of these promises, a lot of these things are as yet unfulfilled. Um, Israel is not a great nation when Genesis ends. Uh, they're a family of about 70 people. And there's really not uh, much knowledge of God's promises outside of that family. So how will they be a, a blessing to the nations of all the earth uh, unless that, that message gets out? And so as we begin Exodus then, we're gonna start to see some of these promises begin to be fulfilled. So uh, we're gonna see Ex- or Israel become a great nation, at least uh, numerically. Uh, They're going to explode from that 70 people we saw at the end of Genesis. And we're going to see God's greatness be put on display uh, in what was basically the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at the time. So the word is going to get out here. So um, what we'll do this morning is uh, in the first half of Exodus, so we're going to cover Exodus 1 through 19 this morning, uh, and we're going to see, first of all, uh, first of all, we'll go through kind of a quick history. We'll talk about what's going on in the book, and then we'll, we'll look closer at five themes. So these themes are things that we've already seen in Genesis, um, but we're going to see them kind of become even clearer through Exodus as as this drama unfolds. So let's do this. Let's start by doing an overview of the narrative events in Exodus. And in, in your handouts, you've got an outline, we're not going to Go through that whole outline. You can, you can read that, you can uh, use that, uh, you can refer to that. But just kind of the, uh, as the story unfolds, starting in Exodus chapter 1, um, as I mentioned, it starts with one family. So verse 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So here we begin to see God's promise coming true. Um, uh, Abraham, he promised his offspring would be as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. And now, We see that begin to happen, and and so much so that Pharaoh saw them as a threat. So verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So, um, Israel now in Pharaoh, the king of Egypt's eyes, is becoming a threat. So not only does he then put them into forced labor, labor into slavery, but he also puts out an edict that all of the uh, baby boys in, uh, of the Hebrews should be killed at birth. And so we kind of come to a place again, like we saw several places in Genesis, where the promises of God seem to be in jeopardy. Um, how can the seed of the woman uh, that we saw in, in uh, Genesis three fifteen 15, crushed the head of the serpent if the seed of the woman is killed off by, by the king of Pharaoh. And, and how can uh, they bless all nations if they're stuck here in slavery in, in Egypt? So um, as, we, as we contemplate this and, and things look like they're in jeopardy, it's at just this time that God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Uh, and, and God hears the people's cries. So you see there in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew uh, so God knows what's going on. God is still in control, uh, and He still has a compassion for His people, even though they are in slavery. And so God appears to Moses, and He reveals His plan to rescue the people. At first, Moses is reluctant. We, we know that. Uh, but eventually, he goes before Pharaoh. He calls on him to let the people go. And then, we, in starting in chapter 7, we begin to see this, kind of dramatic battle between the God of Israel and Pharaoh, or between the God of Israel and perhaps between him and the gods of of Egypt. Um, And so God sends this series of plagues on Egypt um, in order to cause Pharaoh to let his people go. And and we see that throughout the first nine devastating plagues, uh, Pharaoh will not let the people go. He he hardens his heart. He won't do it. Um, and that is until the 10th and final plague. Uh, God goes through Egypt in this 10th plague uh, to kill the firstborn of every household. But something interesting it, it, we see in this in that he makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, between his people and his enemies. Um, and so Uh, He instructs each family to slaughter a lamb and to spread the the blood on the doorframe, and He will pass over those households. And and we see that um, in chapter 12. So over in chapter 12, verse 12 says this, For I, the Lord speaking, will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So um, we see that that happens, that 10th plague. And at this, Pharaoh finally relents and lets the people go. Um, And the event that gives this book its name, the Exodus, from Egypt occurs. So starting in chapter 12, Israel now is gonna journey into the wilderness. And so from chapter 12, when they leave Egypt, to chapter 19, when they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, um, which will be, become very significant as we look next week, uh, they, they move out, the entire nation, all of the people led by Moses. And it, it's a remarkable journey, right? Um, they're led by God during the day in, in a pillar of fire. And, and he leads them, at, or I'm sorry, in a, in a pillar of cloud. And at night, in a pillar of fire. So he's leading them out, God himself. Um, and he leads them towards the edge of the Red Sea. And it seems like they've come to a dead end. Um, but as Pharaoh and his armies pursue, God parts the sea. They go through on dry land. And then as the Egyptians try to pursue them, God brings the waters back over them and destroys the army of Pharaoh. So they see this incredible miracle um, and they give praise to God for that in in chapter 15. Um, And then they begin on their journey to encounter a series of problems. And these problems cause them to grumble and complain against Moses and against God. So they run out of water but we see the Lord provide water for them. They run out of food, but we see the Lord provide food miraculously for them. They encounter a hostile enemy, uh, but God gives them the victory uh, in that as well. And so um, we'll see next week then as they get to Mount Sinai, God will then give him his law, as we mentioned earlier. And kind of that's that's the in a nutshell what the stage set is for for. Uh, Exodus is one through 14, or one through nineteen. So, thinking about that, um, just any comments, any questions on that before we begin to look at some specific themes? I mean, we're all pretty familiar with the story, I think. All right, then.
1: parallel that's being set up here between Pharaoh and, and God. Pharaoh would have had a snake that would have been uh, on the top of his hat that he wore. It would have been very, featured very prominently. And I think that's a we're meant to think of that and see some significant parallels happening here between the promise we saw back in Genesis 3.
0: Yeah, so the deceiver you know was, was a serpent right? And so here we see this con- conflict between Uh, Pharaoh, who is aligned effectively with the deceiver uh, and and God. So there's going to be this great battle there. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, let's step back then and consider these five theological themes. Again, we've already seen these things in Genesis, but they'll come into clearer focus in this first half of Exodus, I think. Uh, And these themes then are Are foundational for our understanding of the rest of Scripture. So we'll just see how God is going to progress in His revelation of Himself and and His plan. So, uh, first of all, understandably, if we're going to look at theological themes, uh, we need to start with God. Uh, You know, this is a study of God, right? Theology. Uh, So, one thing we clearly see in Exodus is God's unique identity. So, this is a theme that we're we're going to see throughout Scripture, and we see it very clearly here. Um, and so if you think about even these chapters in this story that we just gave an overview on, what do we see in these chapters that uh, kind of show us that God is unique, that He is a God like no other? OK. He demonstrates love for his people, compassion, and uh, he, he meets their needs. Yeah, that can't be said for most of the gods, really, that have been uh, imagined in, in man's eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What else? What's that? Power. Yeah, there is no power.
1: yeah, because chapter 15, 6, Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces
0: the enemy. Yeah, He is more powerful we than the enemy.
1: Do so today if we trust and believe.
0: That's that's and exactly obey. right. And obey. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, so He is powerful more so than any other God, uh, any other individual, or any other circumstance. What else that makes, that we see that shows us God is like no other?
1: Well, the verses that you read um, earlier from the end of chapter two, I think are very instructive because there are no other gods like this. Um, that God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. All of those things. Yeah.
0: That's really a great uh, thing to meditate on. God knows.
1: And again, 1430 one, Israel saw that great work the, which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Mm. So if he could do that great thing for the hundreds of people, think of what he can do for you.
0: Yeah, he's able to do great things, and he does do great does. things. Yeah, yeah. Turn over to chapter 3. We mentioned earlier uh, this fact that God identifies Himself. And, and uh, in chapter 3, let me read, uh, verses thir- starting in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's His name? What shall I say to them? God come or Moses comes to God with this kind of interesting questions. It's like he says, well, if I go to the the people and they say, well, who sent you? What am I supposed to tell them? You know, who what is your name? Um, And God responds with his name. He responds, I am. Uh, And it's interesting in Scripture, names mean more than just identifiers. So uh, Moses is not asking God, what should I call you? Um, he's asking God, "Who are you?" Uh, he's asking God, "What is who are you like? What is your character? Um, who, who are you and your being?" And so God responds with this answer: "I am." My my name, effectively, who I am is I am, um, and that's in in Hebrew. That's the name Yahweh. Um, in your Bible, you'll see Lord in all caps, and that um, refers to Yahweh, that's, that's God's name, I am. And it's, it's interesting to think about it. What does that mean when God says, I am? Well, He has always been. Um, God. Ha, there's never been a time when God didn't exist. He was not created. He does not derive His existence from anyone or anything. So this is a unique characteristic of God. He's self-existent, he's self-sufficient, and he's sovereign over all things. So he is like no other. There's no other God, there's no other individual, there's no other um, inanimate object. Anything that we can say is like this. Um, God uh, is like no other. And so this becomes clear as God goes to war against the multitude of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And uh, he's going to bring judgment on these other gods because they are not worthy of, of him. And it's interesting, as we think about the plagues um, it's been noted that every one of the plagues is a plague, not only on, on Egypt and Pharaoh, but on the Egyptian gods as well. Um, and so God has power over these gods that they worship. So for example, uh, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River, the god of the Nile River. So what does God do? He turns it to blood. He shows His power over that god. They worshipped the frog goddess, Heket, and so the Lord causes frogs to be a misery in Egypt. They worshipped the god of the earth, Geb, so God brings gnats out of the earth as a judgment. They worshipped the sun god, Ray, um, so he does, a, he, he does some uh, judgments against Ray. One of them, um, apparently in, in Egypt custom, beetles were said to be precious to the sun god Ray. So God brings a plague of flies, insects kind of similar to beetles, right? Uh, and they become also a misery um, and, a, and a plague on the earth. So so on and so forth. God is showing his power and his sovereign uh, authority over these gods that they worshipped. And the point here is that there is no God of Egypt that can stand against the Lord, the great I Am. But at the same time, if you think about it, God is revealing Himself to His people. So in chapter 6, for example, verse 5, He says this, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." So, not only is God one who will uh, exercise judgment over His enemies and false gods, He's also a covenant-keeping God. He remembers the covenant that He made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and He will fulfill that. He will deliver His people because He's going to keep that promise that He made. He's going to fulfill that covenant. So, you know, there, there's uh, two sides to this unique character of God then. Yes, He is judge, He is sovereign, um, but He is also loving and kind and faithful. Um, many other things we see in here. Uh, he's a great warrior. So in, uh, the, in the, the worship, the people say in, in verse or in chapter 15, uh, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea the lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation this is my god and i will praise him my father's god and i will exalt him the lord is a man of war the lord is his name Uh, so god is not impotent he will uh, defeat his enemies and again at the same time he is a he's a caring provider Um, in chapter 16 Uh, here's God, even when the people are grumbling and undeserving of His mercy and, and of His grace and His provision, He will do it anyway. He's going to provide, uh, miraculously, meat in the wilderness uh, that they uh, did not deserve and did not know how in the world they were going to be able to, to get that. So um, the question then is, is there any other God like this? You know, is there any God who has always been? Is there any God who's all-powerful and is faithful to His Word? Uh, and the answer is no. There is no other God like this. God is unique. So then a question for us, I think, is there any comfort in knowing this God? Yes. Very much. Yeah, how so? Why, why is it comforting? That we know this God and we see what He he has done. We
1: can't uh, come up with any kind of earthly power that is going to thwart His plans.
0: Yeah, there's nothing. You know, Satan is busy trying to thwart God's plans. We see that from the beginning, right, in the garden. Can't do it. He's unable. We can take comfort in the fact that God will bring His plans to fruition. Other thoughts? Well, regardless of our circumstances, um, God is powerful. He's faithful. He will meet our needs, whatever those needs happen to be, um, primarily spiritual, as, as we'll see as we, we go on. Well, that's the first theme there. The next one, then, is it's not only to see who God is, but how He works. So specifically, the pattern of redemption that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ is put on display even here in Exodus. Um, So the pattern of redemption is a theme that we'll see throughout Scripture. And and there are three aspects to this pattern. So first of all is the problem. Um, And the problem here, as we see in, in Exodus, is that the people are oppressed in slavery. So here's a problem. The people are in slavery. So the solution then that we will see, and it becomes a pattern, is that the Lord will single-handedly act to save His people, sparing them through His judgment through a blood sacrifice. So, that, you know, that's I'll say that again. It's a little bit long. The Lord single-handedly acts to save the people, sparing them from His judgment through a blood sacrifice. And so that's a theme that we see throughout Scripture, right, culminating with Christ. And then the third aspect of this pattern is the result. Um, the Lord leads His people to the promised land where they can worship Him and be in fellowship with Him. So that's this pattern of redemption, uh, and, and we, continue to, we should continue to look for that as we go through all of Scripture. It recurs throughout the Old Testament. We'll see it over and over. And then finally, it, is, it culminates with salvation in Christ, where God saves us not from physical slavery, but from a far more deadly slavery, and that is the slavery to sin. So all of us as humans are enslaved to, to sin, our sin nature, and that's the problem. But God will provide that solution in Christ through that blood sacrifice in Christ. And the result will be that we will be able to be with God uh, in eternity um, where we can fellowship with Him and we can worship Him. So you see how that pattern uh, show, shows itself very clearly in the Exodus from Egypt, but will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. And so then the third pattern that we see is God's provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. Again, we saw this already in Genesis, um, and particularly we saw it in uh, the the scene where Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, and then God provides a ram as a substitute, uh, and, and Abraham sacrifices that ram. So that points us again to Christ. And then we see it here in Exodus as well, and particularly we see it in the Passover, So turn back again to chapter 12 of Exodus. And again, I'll read in verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So again, God had told them to take the Passover lamb, a lamb without blemish, and slaughter that lamb, and take the blood and spread it on their doorposts, and then He promises that He will pass over them. And why do you think that was necessary then? Let's think for a second. Uh, Why was it necessary for the Israelites to put the blood on their doorframe? When the when God is going to destroy the firstborn. Jason. Uh, <laughs> it makes
1: me think that they're not any different ultimately from the Egyptians without something covering. Them.
0: Yeah. What do you think of that? You think that's right? The Israelites are really no different from the Egyptians. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, so um, both Egypt and Israel were, were sinful and, in, and God was right to judge them. Uh, but God provides this, sac- this sacrifice, this substitute, where instead of um, killing the firstborn of the Israelites, He will accept the death of the, the Lamb in their place. So if they don't do that, Um, they're subject to death just like the Egyptians were. So the substitutionary sacrifice is critical uh, for salvation. And so again, without a a substitute, the firstborn would die. Um, But it's God who is gracious. He's covenant-keeping. And He will allow Israel's judgment to fall on the substitute, on the Lamb instead of on them. And so this clearly points us to Christ, right? Um, This is exactly what happens When Jesus dies on the cross and and God accepts His sacrifice and puts all of His wrath poured out on Christ in our place, without Christ's sacrifice, then that wrath would fall on us, just like it would have on the Israelites if they hadn't have had the blood on the the doorposts. Um, And we see this in the New Testament. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, he recognizes the connection between the Passover lamb and Christ. And Jesus uh, tells his disciples this plainly, Matthew 26, um, when they're celebrating the Passover together um, and he institutes the Lord's Supper. and He says, this is my blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and so it's, it's a very clear connection there. Um, and we see this pattern uh, very clearly uh, in Starting in Genesis, then it comes into clear focus at the Exodus, the Passover, and then we see that throughout Scripture pointing us to Christ. next um, pattern here then is that God has chosen a people for Himself. Um, and again, this points back to God's covenant with Abraham. Um, he called Abraham one man to, to go um, to where He would call him to. And this also again points us Forward to Christ. So turn back to chapter 4 of Exodus and and look at what God says about his people that he has chosen. Look in verse 21. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So isn't that interesting? God describes Israel, this this huge nation of people, as his firstborn son. Um, And when we think about that description, there is something in that that is both a privilege and there's a responsibility there as well. Israel has the the privilege of of knowing and being uh, loved and helped by God, but they also have a special mission, and that is to display God's glory to the rest of the nations. God is putting His glory on display through this people that He has called His firstborn son. So, think about that for a second. How well does Israel fulfill that role? How, how well do they do in representing to the world um, God's son, God's firstborn son? They do a good job of it? <laughs> they mess up. They fail. they fail. Yeah, yeah. They don't do a really great job at di- putting God's glory on display, right? I mean, starting immediately after the, witnessing the, mir- the miracle of the Lord um, saving them at the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness and they begin to grumble because they don't have anything to drink. They don't have anything to eat. Um, in chapter 17, what's that? Yeah, well, I think there's truth in that. We would probably be right there with them. Um, in chapter 17, they put the Lord to the test because they have no water to drink. That's, that's the language there. Um, they have put the Lord to the test. Um, in later, we'll see next week in chapter twenty, in thirty-two, the people fall into idolatry. Um, even, uh, well, um, even when uh, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God, they're down at the bottom worshiping a false god. So. You know, things don't get much better in the rest of the Old Testament. As we keep going through it, um, we'll see that the people continue to fail um, in their role as as Would God's chosen people. Worship a golden calf? Would we worship a golden calf? Well, um, probably not in our context now, but we still worship i we still worship idols. We still worship things that are not God and have no power. Um, like a red hog. Like a red hog. that well that hurts. <laughs> yeah, so, so we can't we can't think of ourselves as superior to ancient people because we don't worship carved images. We are still an idolatrous people in our nature as, as human beings. But we and so we're going to see that we're going to see it throughout the Old Testament. Um, this is not going to get any better. Israel is not going to improve. Um, as the representative of God and and showing His glory to the rest of the world. um, They're not going to fulfill that role as God's firstborn son very well. Um, And so it leaves us longing for one who will do that. And of course, this points us to Christ. And think about the parallel between Christ and Israel. Uh, You know, Israel went um, into the wilderness. They, they kind of essentially, they go through the Red Sea and kind of a, you know, essentially a baptism through the water, and then they go into the wilderness. Um, and then once they're in the wilderness and they begin to face these temptations and they fail um, to, to do the things that they should have done. So um, they, they are tempted. Um, and they fail to, to uh, glorify God in that. But compare that to Christ then. You know, what did Christ do? Even you think in Matthew chapter 4. So he's baptized, then he goes in the, into the wilderness and he begins to face temptation. So um, compare him to, to Israel. Um, he's tempted due to a lack of food. Um, but instead of grumbling against God, he relies on the Word of God. Um, and says you know, that He does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, when, when Jesus is tempted to put God to the test, He refuses to do so. And when He's tempted to worship some other God, you know, Satan says, I'll give you everything if you'll just fall down and worship me. Uh, Jesus rejects that false God. And so where Israel failed, Jesus fulfilled everything that they were called to be. Uh, And so Jesus, it turns out, is the true Israel, the true firstborn son of God. So, you know, you see how um, we're longing for Israel uh, to be be fulfilled in Christ and and their satisfaction in that. So again, this is a theme that we begin to see God's chosen people. And then the last theme here then is the theme that kind of ties this all together. And that's, Why does God do this? It's for His His glory. So, His motive in bringing us through this drama of the Exodus is for His glory. So, look then again at at chapter 6. Let me see, verse 6 in chapter 6. that I am the Lord your God. And it's interesting that that phrase, um, you shall know that I am the Lord your God, occurs 14 times in these chapters. So everything that God is doing, He's doing so that they will know that He is the Lord God. Um, so His purpose there is to reveal who He is and to, that He would be exalted in His glory. Uh, and so the greatest thing that we can do as followers of God, is to know who He is. You know, it's, it begins with that. And, and that's the purpose that God has in this whole drama uh, throughout Exodus. Notice in chapter 9, the purpose of the plagues. Um, in chapter 9, verse 29, Moses said to him, to Pharaoh, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out... or I'm sorry... Um, God said, let's see, anyway, Moses said to him, as soon as, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord. So he's telling Pharaoh, the reason I'm going to do this is so that you may know that the earth belongs to the Lord. And similar at the Red Sea crossing over in chapter 14. Why does he do it? Verse 4 And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So again, the point of even the crossing of the Red Sea is so, not only will Israel know, but Egypt as well will know that he is the Lord. And if you think about it, really, this is the reason that Israel was in slavery in Egypt in the first place. So that God could demonstrate his power over what was then the greatest nation on earth uh, at the time. So everyone would know that God was great and that he would get glory because of his victory over the most powerful uh, nation that, that mankind had seen. So God's glory is revealed by delivering a people. Um, God's glory is revealed by establishing a pattern of redemption. God's glory is revealed by providing a substitute sacrifice. And his glory is revealed in how he mercifully cares through his own people throughout all of this. So, you know, as we think about this, then kind of, is there any application in it? Is there any application as we consider um, what we see in Exodus, the first part of Exodus for us, for our lives? We need the great I am. Yes. It's true. What else can we apply from this to our lives? All the purposes in our lives are for God's glory. Yeah. Have you considered that that everything that happens in your life is to put God's glory on display? So you say, well, why were these people in slavery? You know, that's terrible. Um, It put God's glory on display as he brings them out of slavery. Um, And every circumstance that they go through was, was an opportunity to give God glory and to display him to those around them. And it's the same for us. You know, everything we go through, regardless of what that circumstance is, is an opportunity that we would put God's glory on display. How do we do that then? I'm going through a trial uh, and I understand from scripture, this is an opportunity to, to put God's glory on display. H- how do I, how do I accomplish that? Grumbling seems like the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there, there we see uh, the Israelites grumbled when they had the opportunity to put God on display, not the right way to go about it, yeah. So. Um, are we inclined to grumble at circumstances? Maybe we should. <laughs> no, we never. Maybe we should uh, consider that. That's. So what's
1: the flip side to that? If grumbling's the wrong answer, what's praise. the right? Uh, praise. Praise not even for English.
0: Yeah. Have you praised God for your trials? You know, that's a that's a good question to ask somebody. Well, I, I do all the
1: time.
0: Amen. <laughs>
1: praise Him for my. I mean, I'm sorry it had to happen this way, but
0: i my, my wreck. Amen. It had to happen, but change my life. Because if it hadn't happened, I may have never truly given my life a try. Yeah. And, and think about the impact that has on people. Like, you know, we, we, look at, we look at Amber and say, she's in a wheelchair. That's terrible. And she's praising the Lord. Like, doesn't that make me stop and think?
1: Mm. This world
0: I mean, this is this is a short time to compare it to eternity. Yeah. The eternity never ends. The law never, ever ends. Yeah. And I don't want to be in hell forever. No, no. Yeah, so there's. And I will be in heaven and I won't be in this thing in heaven. Mm-hmm. I, will be, I will be up and dancing and praising and saying, <laughs> Hallelujah, Lord. Praise you, Lord God. Praise you, praise you, praise you. Amen. What else? Other Other thoughts on application from this, this particular set of passages. Yeah, which is effectively uh, faith. You know, we we are called to faith in this God who who is a promise-keeping God. Yeah,
1: Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The good news came to us just as to them, speaking of them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, There is a a direct application to the faith that we're called to have. You know, I think it's important that um, we realize we are His people if we're in Christ. So this story is about God's people, those He called His firstborn son. He, he chose them, starting back with Abraham. And so if we're in Christ, we're our, we are His people as well. And so these promises and the way He delivers, these patterns that we see, um, they're applicable to us as well. We have been redeemed from slavery to sin, just as the the Israelites were redeemed from slavery. If uh, Jesus' atoning blood has been applied to us through repentance and faith. So we see that again, uh, how he saved Israel and passed over them uh, when death was the judgment that applies to us. You know, so we're called to live in a manner that brings Him glory. Um, that's kind of the point of, of the lesson to learn for us as, as New Testament saints. Uh, we're to put Him on display to the watching world. And, and as we said, this should, should uh, impact every aspect of our lives. This is not some compartment of our life that we do on Sunday. Um, it's every day and every circumstance that we're in. Uh, we're able to put uh, the glory of God on display by how we live, how we uh, are faithful and how we trust him and his promises. So any other thoughts on this? Any other questions? If you have a hard question, I'll just refer you to Terry. All right. If. If not, then um, Bennett, would you close us in prayer?